what would life be like in an ideal world? In an ideal world. Different people would have different answers to that question. For some, they would say, in an ideal world, there'd be no such thing as taxes. Um, other people would say, in an ideal world, there'd be no such thing as money. Some would say, in an ideal world, everybody would be fit and healthy all the time. Others might say, in an ideal world, we'd be able to eat as much junk food as we can without having any negative effects on us. The concept of the ideal world is often very different compared to who you ask. And often what we mean when we talk about the ideal world is just our idea of what would be best for us. But the fact that we can think even of a more ideal world than the one we live in points to the fact that this world is less than ideal. This world is broken. This world is damaged in some way. It's dysfunctional. And there is even a hope that perhaps if we can correctly identify what is broken with this world, what has gone wrong, maybe we can pool our resources, put our energies together and fix what has gone wrong. Maybe, just maybe, we can achieve the ideal world. Well, at a simple level, Genesis agrees with that basic assessment of the world. Genesis says that this world is broken. Something has gone wrong. In the next few weeks here on Sunday mornings, we're going to be looking at just what has gone wrong and why it's gone wrong and the results that that has brought into the world. But this week, we're looking at Genesis chapter 2, which first gives us a picture of what the world should have been like. It paints the picture of the first ideal world. Now, in chapter 1 of Genesis, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, we've sort of had a a very high-level view. We've had a look at the world as a whole, how God created it in six days. But then in chapter 2, the the narrative sort of zooms in to one particular place to give greater detail. So these two accounts, chapter 1 and chapter 2, they don't contradict each other, they complement each other. We've got detail in chapter 2, which we didn't have in chapter 1. It gives us extra information, helps us better understand the way that God created. And in chapter 2, the narrative focuses on this place called Eden, verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. Now straight away, that little word Eden, that name, gives us a clue to what this place is going to be like. The word Eden means delight. This is a place of delight. Why is it a place of delight? Well, we don't have to read for very long to start to understand why. In Eden, verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden. Now be careful what image you conjure up in your mind at this point. If you come to my house and you look in my garden, what you will see is mainly concrete. Concrete paving slabs, brick walls, and that's about the extent of my garden. Okay, It's just a backyard, basically. There are, there are two potted plants, one with some herbs in and one with a little tree in it. And that's it. That's the extent of my garden. When God plants this garden, it's more than just a little backyard. It's more than just somewhere to store the wheelie bins and to put the bike shed. The garden that God planted is beautiful. Um, I know there's some more impressive gardeners than I am in this church, but I think the, the garden that God planted is even more impressive than our own efforts might ever be. 
You see, this garden isn't planted by man. It isn't planted by Adam and Eve, the first humans. This garden is planted by God himself. The God who invented colour. The God who designed the sense of sight and taste and touch and smell. The God who is the definition of the word good. This is the God who planted this garden in Eden. And as you would expect, it is therefore an astoundingly beautiful place. Look at the next verse. There are all kinds of trees in this place, and the purpose of these trees is twofold. Verse 9, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. When God plants his garden, he isn't just creating a functional space. He's not just creating somewhere uh, that, that, that mankind will be able to survive for a while. His first priority listed in this verse is that it would be pleasing to the eye. His first priority is that it was beautiful. And on top of that beauty, he gives the function. God makes a place that is full of variety. There are many types of food. Full of beauty. Uh, It's good, pleasing to the eye. And it's full of pleasure. This is good food. Not just sustenance, but good, tasty, nutritious food. And God puts a little water feature in his garden. Maybe some of you have got a water feature in your garden, maybe a little fountain, maybe a little pond with some koi carp. God's water feature surpasses all those. God puts the wellspring of a river in this garden. And this river flows out of the garden then to water most of the known world at the time, most of the Middle East. Imagine if the Yangtze River started in your backyard. Imagine if the River Thames started at your doorstep. Imagine the significance that that would give to your little plot of land. Did those rivers that water the earth, did they need to start in Eden? Was there a functional requirement for them to start there? No, I don't think there was. But by creating the rivers in this way, starting them off in Eden, God gives significance to this garden that he has planted. And he sets up the pattern that shows just as these rivers start from Eden and then flow out to water the whole earth, so Adam and Eve, the first humans, would start in Eden and then spray out to subdue and control and care for the whole earth. And what sort of places would Adam and Eve get to if they ventured out of this garden? Well, now we're into verse 11. They would get to a land full of gold, aromatic resin and Onyx. The name of the first river that winds through is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. Not just any old gold, but the gold of that land is good. It is pure, high quality. There is aromatic resin there and onyx, a precious stone, that is. These are luxurious materials. It's not just your average sort of iron and bronze. It's not just the functional stuff that God has provided. He's provided luxury, abundance, prosperity. God is providing a good place for his people to live. And look how God continues to care for the needs of mankind. He provides for him the food, uh, the, the luxurious materials, and he gives him freedom to enjoy all that he has made. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, you are free 
to eat from any tree in the garden. God isn't sort of holding off some areas. He's not creating like exclusive access, VIP only parts of this garden. It's free access to humanity. Come and enjoy all. Enjoy all that I have created in all of its goodness. And when something still isn't quite right for mankind, God steps in again and provides. It's not Adam who first realises that he's, he's not got a helper. It's God who sees the need. God sees that Adam is alone. And God says it's not good for man to be alone. And God provides a wife for Adam. Verse 25, the last verse of the chapter, sums up well the feeling of what it must have been to live in this place. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. There was no need for shame in this place. There was nothing dirty or dark. There was nothing impure that needed hiding. There was only joy and openness. We infer from later passages in the Bible that there was only life. There was no death or pain or suffering in this place. It's a place of God's abundant goodness. His overwhelming generosity. It's an ideal world for mankind to flourish and to grow and to develop. This is firstly, surely, a beautiful place. But this beautiful place, don't picture in your mind Adam and Eve just sitting back in their deck chairs sipping their margaritas. It's not a lazy place. Uh, this Garden of Eden is, uh, it is luxurious, it is good, but it's also a busy place. It's designed to be an active place, a place where mankind would work. Now you get a hint of this in those first few verses that opened the chapter, verse 5 and 6. Now those are not the easiest verses to translate and then to understand, but the description of the earth in verse 5 and 6 uh, focuses on the idea that there's no plants there because there was nobody to work the ground. Now, there's, there's no rain coming down. There are streams, there are rivers that flow through the land. So you've got plenty of water. But even though you've got plenty of water, there's no plants growing up. Why is that? Well, because there's not, not so much rain coming down. There's no rain. So you've got all this water going through the land, but the water is sort of confined to the streams. And typical of the way people farmed in the Middle East and the way they still do farm is what needed to happen was a man, a person, needed to come and dig some trenches from the river to flow the water outwards to the rest of the ground so that crops could be grown. Man needed to provide irrigation, is the word. Um, Without man doing his work, no plants are going to grow. And so the earth is shown to be waiting for It's set up, ready for humans, but it's waiting for humans to come and work it in order to achieve its design. So, God forms man in verse 7, and then in verse 15, God places man in the garden to work it and to take care of it. Or in some translations, to work it and to keep it, to protect it, to guard it, that is, to nurture it as if it's his own. Adam was not made for a life of laziness. He was made for a life of working, using his strength and his abilities, using his intellect and his reasoning in order to rule over the world and make it fruitful, to make it progress. 
Adam is given a task even to improve the situation of the world that God had created. That's the significance of the work that Adam has to do. He's able to improve God's very good creation. He's able to develop it, to make it more fruitful. But he can't do it alone, and so God makes a helper for him, the wife. The wife that God gives to Adam is not first, noted, she's not first described as a companion. God doesn't see Adam, oh, he's just got nobody to talk to. This is why he needs a wife. No, that's not what the passage says. God sees Adam needs a helper to work alongside him. So the wife is provided, not just so that Adam's got somebody to talk to on them long, lonely evenings. God provides a wife so that Adam has someone to work alongside him, to help him, to labour with him, to work in this same role that Adam has been given, to subdue and rule over the earth, to make it more fruitful. This is a busy place, Eden. But the most significant feature of Eden is that it is a blessed place. And when I say that it's a blessed place, I don't just mean that it's a a happy place or a nice place, although that is sometimes what we mean when we use the word blessed. When I say it's a blessed place, I mean it's a place that is under the special favour and care of God himself. Eden is a place where God and humanity lived in close relationship. And you see that in two ways. First, you see that God actually is physically present in this garden. In verse 16 and in verse 18, God speaks directly to Adam. In verse 19 and in verse 21, God interacts with Adam. He brings the animals to Adam. or He causes him to sleep. He removes his rib. And in chapter 3, verse 8, we read that God walks in this garden. The God who created the world chooses to enter the world. He doesn't stand far off. He draws near. He doesn't hide himself from mankind. He reveals himself. He doesn't leave them guessing about how they should live. He speaks and he instructs them. First, you see the presence of God in the garden. And secondly, you see this in the dynamic of the relationship between Adam and God. How do they relate to one another? What is the characteristic of that relationship? Well, it's given in one command, verse 16 and 17. Man is given complete freedom to eat within God's garden, and just one command is given alongside it. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Notice this, the command isn't given to the animals. It's only given to mankind. It's a result of the special relationship that God has with Adam. God doesn't have this same relationship with all of creation. He has this special relationship with mankind, who is made at the head of his creation. And there is freedom. When God gives this command to Adam, it means there is freedom for Adam to choose. The fish will carry on swimming just as they've been designed. The birds will always be able to fly, just as God designed them. The the elephant will always trudge across the desert, just like God had designed it. And they can do no other. But Adam is given a choice. 
because he's given a command. God says, you are free to eat from any tree, but you must not eat of this one. This, this command isn't designed to hold anything back from Adam and Eve. It's not designed to restrict them or hem them in. It's designed to give them freedom, more choice, more autonomy in the situation that they've been placed in. And the choice is that either they can choose to obey God, a, a, a reflection of their love and their trust towards him, or they can choose to disobey God, a reflection of their pride and their search for independence from God, cutting themselves off from him. In this one command, God shows, but at the same time, both his complete provision, I've given you everything that you need, and he also allows man to respond to God in either love of God or hatred and rejection of God. So Eden then is a beautiful place, it's a busy place, and it's a blessed place. It's a place of abundant goodness, a place of fruitful labour, and a place of close relationship under God's favour. But what, of course, is the significance of all this? Why have you turned up to church this morning to read about what happened right at the beginning of creation? What cash value does it have? How does it influence what you're going to do tomorrow morning and the rest of this week and on into your life? Well, knowing what we were made for, knowing the reason that we were designed, is one of the most practically helpful pieces of information that a person can have. These verses tell us what our lives really should be like. They show us what we were designed for. And they help correct our false and misguided ideas of the ideal world that sometimes we chase after. So, for example, there might be people who consider that life is all about material pleasures. Getting the good things and enjoying them. Now, that might be money and and a big house and and a fast car. But it might equally be leisure time. Time spent with the family, time off at the beach, time touring the country in a camper van, whatever else it might be. Somebody might set their hearts on, my life is all about material pleasures. Genesis chapter 2 shows us, leisure, rest, enjoying the goodness of this world is part of what God has made us for. But it's not your highest call. It's not what you were made for. It's not the pinnacle of your being. You were designed for a relationship with God. You were designed to work and to serve him. You were designed to know him, to be obedient to him. And so Genesis chapter 2 helps correct our misguided idea that my life is all about getting the pleasure, getting the happiness, getting the things I want. Similarly, there might be some Christians here who take that a little bit too far. They say, you know, I'm all about serving God. I'm I'm a spiritual person, and so because of that, I've put material things totally beside me. Perhaps as a Christian, you sometimes feel a little bit guilty when you enjoy the good things of this world, when you enjoy the luxuries of the world. Perhaps you feel guilty for living in a land where there is much good gold. These verses from Genesis chapter 2 show us that luxury... Abundance, wealth, prosperity is not necessarily 
a hindrance to our relationship with God. But they can be used as part of our service to God. And God has given them ultimately for us to enjoy. He made things pleasing to the eye. Just for the sakes of them being pleasing. So we don't have to feel guilty about all the times that we enjoy the good things that God has created. Some people might find their work a real frustration, a real difficulty, a real distraction from what they really want to be doing in life. Maybe your goal is to retire early with a nice healthy pension. Maybe that's what you're chasing after. These verses from Genesis chapter 2 say, don't, don't wish your life away. You were made to work. You've got a role in, on this earth to make an improvement to the world in which we live in. E- yes, even to improve God's very good creation. That's what you've been assigned to do. You've been given the gifts and the abilities and the strength to do that. And perhaps your role in that will, might only be helping others to do that. But in some way or another, you are contributing to this role that God has given to humanity to work and to subdue and to rule over this creation. Perhaps there are some who think about God only as a person who is restrictive and damaging to society. God is only there to tell me what I can't do. God is only there to withhold good things from me. You can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do the other. I would urge you, read Genesis 2 again. See what sort of God he really is. See the way he does provide for his people. Not just the bare minimum. He's not just providing what they need to functionally survive. He provides in abundance, with goodness, with luxury. Can you really read Genesis chapter 2 and say that this God is restrictive? And his only aim is to hem us in and to hold us back from the good things? Not at all. The picture we get of God from Genesis 2 is that God wants to give us the best things. And there might be some here today who look at the world around us that we live in today. They see the suffering. They see the damage. They see the death. They see the hurt. They see the human nature which is greedy and proud at every turn. And they say, God is either not good or is simply not there. Genesis 2 is so important for answering those sorts of questions, those sorts of challenges. Because it shows us that the world that we live in today is damaged. It's dysfunctional. It's not the design that God started with. The world that God created was good. It was very good. Not just by his definition, but by what we would define as good as well. That's what God had intended for the world. So don't assume, when you look around the world today, that the world you see today is an accurate reflection of God's character. Because it really isn't. The world we see today is damaged. It is broken. It has been ripped apart. And the message of the Bible, from chapter 3 onwards, one of the the ideas that is underpinning all that happens through these 2,000 pages that we've got in front of us, is how do we return to Eden? How do we get back to that ideal world that God created? How will that world of abundant prosperity, the flourishing life of human achievement, how will that world of justice and love and righteousness, how will that world where God and man are in perfect relationship, how will we ever get back there? 
That's one of the ideas underpinning the whole of the Bible story. Maybe by educating people. If we can show them where they've gone wrong, maybe we can, maybe we can get back to Eden. Maybe by social action. If we all pool our efforts together and care for the most vulnerable, we can get back to something like it was at Eden. Maybe by government intervention, if they use their wealth and their power and their influence, they could get us back to a situation like we had at Eden. Maybe by escaping civilization. Maybe we need to go up into the, ha- into the hills and the mountains and, and create our own little colony there. Maybe through technological advancement. We could defeat death if, if we only had better medical care. Do you know, throughout the history of the world, different people have tried all those sorts of suggestions and more in order to get back to something like what we had at Eden. And yet they all fail. They all fall short. Because none of them deals with the root of the problem. None of them deals with human nature. God's word teaches us how we will return to Eden. In fact, it gives us a promise to Christians, that one day we will live in a place just like Eden was. Not by our doing, though. It's not by us rebuilding it. It's not by Christians working together to recapture a sense of Eden here on earth. Instead, it's going to be done by God remaking it. God is going to start again, as it were. He's going to make a new heaven and earth. Just like this earth, but but better. Just like this earth as it was intended to be. Just like this earth, without the problem of sin and the corruption that mankind has brought into it. You know, these first pages of the Bible start with a description of that Eden, that place of delight. And the very last pages of the Bible also give a description of that place of delight. Only the last pages, they're not looking back to how it started. They're looking forward to how it one day will be. The hope of the Christian person, the thing that we are waiting for, the thing that we long for every day is for Jesus Christ to return from his throne in heaven to the earth. And when he returns, this earth will be made new. Everything wrong will be put right. And the dwelling of God will be with men. All his people will rise from the dead, never to die again. It will be a world where death and suffering are no longer present. A world where the human nature is as God designed it to be. Very good. Where it won't be able to reject God. Where we will never turn from him where we will once again live in the presence of our God and our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that all sound a bit cultish? A bit far-fetched? A bit unbelievable? Does this guy really think that Jesus is going to come back, that, that this earth is going to be remade, that all the Christians who've died throughout the centuries are going to rise back to life? Does he really think that? If God could make the world... Why can't he make it again? If Christ could rise from the dead, why can't he raise his followers? The ideas that we have for the new heaven and new earth are not just empty promises 
written by people long ago with, with fuzzy ideas about a spiritual world somewhere else. The ideas that we have about the new creation are based upon what God has done in the past. That we can look to the evidence and see, this is the way God has acted. This gives me confidence that his promises for the future will come true. But this promise, this invitation into the new creation, is not, it's not for everyone. It won't just be that the whole of humanity will be invited in. It's only those who've had their sins forgiven. Only those who are trusting in Jesus Christ as their saviour. And so if you're not a Christian, I would challenge you and ask you, do you see the significance of these promises that the Bible makes? Do you see how if you were to accept Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, how these promises would change every aspect of your life now? It's not just about a promise for the future, it's about the way you live today. Can you see how if you had a hope for the future, a hope of a new earth, a hope of a new life with God, that would change the way you live through the struggles and the difficulties of your life now? And if you are a Christian, won't you take that same lesson? That lesson that our home is ahead. This world is not what we're living for. This world is not what we're hoping for and grasping at. We are waiting for the new heaven, the new earth. Won't you set your heart on that place rather than this one, as though that is all that mattered?